Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Heap. In the medical world, there is certainly an endangered species list among physician practices. Certain models have come and gone, physician-owned facilities, ACOs, HMOs, maybe even PPOs. Some are gaining steam, medical homes, direct primary care practices, even concierge practices. But number one on that list of endangered physician practices has got to be self-employed or independent physicians that accept third-party health insurance. This is mostly a generational divide for physicians as 75% of physicians under the age of 45 are employed. Only 22% of medical students say they plan on owning a practice in the future. Our guest, Dr. Craig Wax, is one of those rare physicians and he's been advocating for return to independence for our nation's physicians. 30 years ago, somebody came in with insurance card and it was like what they used to call carte blanche, which was an ultimate credit card where they paid for everything and they didn't question anything. Well, those days are long gone and they're the ones who are trying to drive the care train right into the wall. And that's a real issue. Yeah, We want the patient's agenda to be the primary agenda, the physician's agenda to be the secondary agenda, and then anything else that comes after that is, you know, uh, uh, somewhat moot. Dr. Wax, give us your definition of an independent physician. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me on and always taking up these really meaty, important topics for patients, as well as physicians and society at large, certainly. Um, An independent physician is someone who primarily works for the patient. And historically, let's say 50 years ago, before um, uh, insurance and government really came to town and put their big feet in the ring, a physician worked for the patient and the physician had a price. The patient decided if it was worth the price or not, paid the price at the time of the visit. The patient didn't have to do billing and coding and 16 other tasks in order to take care of a patient. And they wrote a prescription or wrote for a test or delivered a treatment in the office. And it was, it was what's called, it's a, it's a one-to-one or primary relationship because it was the person wanting the service paying for the service and the person delivering the service, delivering the service in a first person sort of way. Then, you know, came second person with insurance companies and third person and third parties with employer paid insurance companies. Then, so not only aren't you choosing your care and your caregiver, you're not even choosing your insurance anymore. Your employer is choosing your insurance if you're not Mm self-employed and your options are minimal anymore. So it used to be that patients and physicians had a one-to-one relationship. And now there's, I guess, six degrees of separation. It kind of goes back to who is the actual customer in this relationship almost when you see a lot of those third parties like you're talking about. And we see this a lot in the benefits world where brokers will talk about their clients, but their clients aren't paying them a dime. The big insurance companies are paying their paychecks, right? And so, sure. so yeah, going back to an independent case, I mean, that's that kind of direct relationship, direct payer structure where if I'm your patient, you perform a service on me, I pay you directly. You're not having to chase down reimbursement and codes or anything like that from a faceless, uh, almost blood-sucking organization that's supposed to represent your best interests. 
Right. And, and the more interests and the more agenda that are in the room at the time, because there's a patient's agenda and then there's a physician's agenda, right? And, and you have to match those up and make sure some get knocked off of each list. And then when you have an insurance company, well, there's the insurance company's agenda. Well, the employer bought it, so there's an employer's agenda. And then don't forget uh, Mr. and Mrs. Government, that's uh, your state and your Fed, that are now involved in making rules for you. Well, you have to cover certain things. You can't cover other things. And they're taking choice out of the mix, and that's very difficult. Um, the, the issue primarily that I'm concerned with is physicians being independent. In fact, I, I started... Uh, a group called Independent Physicians for Patient Independence. And there's a lot of articles and blog posts, things there that are useful to people on what's going on. But the, the point of the whole matter is, if a physician works directly for a patient, that's the ideal situation. The next situation is a physician that accepts insurance from the patient or from the employer. So there's a little more of a divide there. However, now patients are further divided from their physicians when, let's say, a physician who used to take insurance and have to deal with the patient's agenda, the insurance's agenda, the um, employer's agenda, and the government agenda, of course. Having said that, now they have to deal with their employer's agenda because after, gosh, it was ACA in 2010 or the the so-called Affordable Care Act, but I call it the Unaffordable Careless Act because it's proven itself over a decade to be completely unaffordable, completely careless, and I don't know that it's, there's any care to be had there. Uh, my insurance has gone up immeasurably as an employer, as a patient, and my reimbursements have gone down as the physician side. So having said that, the choices also in many states um, have gone down also. You used to have 12 choices, and then six choices, and then three choices. And in some places, there's only one choice. And to me, when you say you have one choice, that's a monopoly, not a choice. Mm -hmm. So that's an issue. But the, my whole point is, is when a physician, instead of working for themselves, making decisions on what time and what effort to put into what patient at their own risk and peril, if you work for a hospital, let's say they say you have to see six patients an hour. Well, then at that point, you're making widgets or pizzas and you know you've got to produce. And it doesn't have to be a high quality widget or pizza, but certain check boxes have to be checked and you have to turn over on an assembly line. Well, my patients don't want assembly line medicine and I offer something that's not on an assembly line. And ideally, when I grow up, <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle age now, but when I really grow up, I'd like to be a DPC or a direct primary care practice where patients can reimburse directly and I can set my overhead appropriately and be responsive to their needs and not their insurance company needs or their employer's needs or government program needs like Medicare. Right. I think that's a ringing endorsement coming from you of uh, the power of DPC to create those relationships. Something interesting you touched upon was this concept of agendas in the exam room. And I really want to focus on that because sure. I think that is a very, very good way to boil down a lot of the problems that physicians and other medical professionals face these days. So give us an example. So, you know, Chris, the patient walks into your office and I say, hey, I'm not feeling very well. So clearly my agenda is to get better or kind of on the flip side, we're saying I want to get better and then I want to stay well. So that is the patient's agenda. From the physician's standpoint, 
give me an idea of what your agenda would be on that case. You know, that's interesting because most patients don't get that far into the thought process. They're just <laughs> thinking of, I want to feel better now. Yeah. Meanwhile, you went much further into that process, which is a philosophy that I share is, is I want to get well, but not only get well, I want to stay well and I want to prepare to be well in the future. I mean, as much as we can predict, of course, you know, doing mm -hmm. smart things, diet, exercise, not poisoning ourselves, sleeping and trying to love somebody at some point. So, I mean, there's you know, some very basic things. So let's say um, Chris came in and he said, okay, uh, my knee hurts and um, I have insurance and I want an MRI. And I did a physical exam and I said, Chris, all due respect to your diagnosis and your doctor Googling and your, you know, your own pain and feelings. Um, <laughs> I've done a physical exam and there's really nothing torn in your knee. You really don't need an MRI. Meanwhile, the patient is like, I want an MRI and someone should pay for this. Well, A, the MRI may not be necessary. B, the insurance company doesn't want to pay for it. And, and the interesting story is, is when I tell the patient, your insurance company's not going to want to pay for it. And I say, you know what? The asking price is about $1,200, but I have a local place that'll do it for $400, so I can get you 30% of the price. And the patient says to me, um, do I really need an MRI? Mm -hmm. So their perspective changes with, with what their expectation is as to what's paid for. 30 years ago, somebody came in with an insurance card and it was like what they used to call carte blanche, which was an ultimate credit card where they paid for everything and they didn't question anything. Well, those days are long gone and they're the ones who are trying to drive the care train right into the wall. And that's a real issue. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We want the patient's agenda to be the primary agenda, the physician's agenda to be the secondary agenda. And then anything else that comes after that is, you know, uh, somewhat moot. It should be, I agree with you on that one, but it's not because then you have the agenda of the insurance company. You know, how, we, how many times have we oh, talked absolutely. about claims being denied or somebody answering the phone at an insurance company with a high school education and they're disputing or running through a checklist to a highly trained, highly educated, highly experienced physician. So you have their agenda, right? And now you have the agenda of any type of employer who, you know, say they want to maintain neutrality in it, whether they have what type of plan it is, it doesn't matter, but there's always an eye towards expense when it comes from a business uh, standpoint, for sure. Right, and, and interestingly, when it's a first-person transaction, like you were talking about in DPC or a second transaction, like in my practice, a second uh, degree transaction, I guess, mm -hmm. the interesting thing is, is patients should be the ultimate drivers of whether an expense is worthwhile everyone's own individual value system means something. Like, Chris, you might spend, you know, $1,000 on a smartwatch to track your heart, and I might spend $3,000 for a, a special bicycle that does certain things except for fly. And other people might say, you know what, I'd rather spend money on my family. So everyone has a different value system. And when the person is choosing whether or not to pay based on posted known prices, that's the best case scenario, in my opinion. Absolutely. But now you don't even know prices. You walk into the hospital. I had a patient 10 years ago, walked into the ER and said, I don't have insurance. How much will it be? They could not give her an answer. Oh, they physically couldn't give yeah. her an answer. Well, that's, how, can you, that's... how can you sell a service or product without a price? Yeah, exactly. It, it makes it very tough in a market-based economy, for sure. So that introduces the fifth agenda, 
that you don't have to deal with, and that is the employer's agenda, right? It, it reminds me of a, of a story. I was talking to this, um, this physician who used to be an orthopedic surgeon, very accomplished, and he said, Chris, I walked away from my practice when the administration came down and said, one out of three patients that comes and sees me, you have to send them to surgery whether they need it or not. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's, that's really drastic. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. And it's amazing because, you know, all the statisticians, the actuaries and all of that, they're all being used and, and pirated to benefit large institutions, insurance, pharmacy benefits managers or PBMs, group purchasing organizations, huge hospital systems. As I said, I mean, I cope with the hassles of insurance and government, but only to an extent because, you know, my goal, as I said, when I grow up is to be DPC and true first person transactions, not second person. How do we best cope with this insurance or government nonsense transactions? Yeah. And you've incorporated a lot of hallmarks of DPC in your practice already. You know, you talk about direct communication, you talk about a lot of patient education, which is super important. And you're taking time with people to say, look... I'm not going to just throw pills at you, but these are some of the effects and some of the factors you mentioned, you know, if your gym is open or, hey, a better diet is going to really help out here. And I think we're finding that even in the midst of a global pandemic of just how severe complications from obesity and unhealthy lifestyles can be for people. So give us a quick snapshot, you know, of your practice. What's your overhead look like? How many employees? How many active patients? Because again, like I said in in, um, kind of the, the intro here, a lot of physicians these days are just not even considering this to be a uh, viable type of practice option. Oh, for sure. It's very difficult. So fortunately, I worked for a larger practice before this, and I got all my insurance participations as, as noose-like as they are and have become. Um, so I had all that groundwork sort of laid. But I did start this practice out of nothing. Um, my wife was kind enough to to quit her teaching career, to be the lady at the front desk. And she, you know, um, uh, took care of children, uh, breastfed babies, and uh, did everything necessary to help and support, for which I'll be eternally grateful. But, you know, we placed ads in the newspapers. We were hoping that patients that have seen us previously elsewhere would find us. Because a lot of people don't understand that when a physician leaves a practice, it's not necessarily because they're mad at patients or, or, or what the circumstances are because there could be a multitude of circumstances. And if it's an own practice, either by a large group or an entity like a hospital, they won't tell you where the doctor went because they own your relationship technically, and you have to independently find the new doctor. They have what's called a restrictive covenant, which a lot of people don't know about. But in medicine, it should be illegal, immoral, and fattening. But it is in in law practices, but doctors don't run the world. That's a big issue, too. Having said that. Big issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some old patients found me, previous patients found Former me, patients. Yeah. and um, we started, and I was working two or three part-time jobs for the first uh, three years. You know, I was told in 12 months I, I'd be full, and not the case. Had to feed new babies, had to make sure the wife's met, needs were met, house, cars, you know, important American stuff to get around. Had to pay for things, food. Um, so I wound up working two or three part-time jobs for three years until I could become completely independent. And it required a level of commitment and determination. Um, and fortunately, you know, my wife shared that, my patient shared that, and, and people came in. And, and at the time, um, around 2001, uh, 2002, when all this was starting up, 
I started to write for Medical Economics Journal. Um, I was featured on the cover twice in 10 years. The first time was because I was actually starting a practice. And like you were saying, Chris, no one was doing it. Either no one had the information or the guts mm -hmm. or the ability even to do it. A lot of physicians now are more like technicians than physicians. You know, they, they kind of look on Google and consult their cell phones on things when, you know, a lot of times, you know, your education, your experience, and just physically going in there doing and trying is your best way to learn. And that was, you know, my training 25 years ago, you know, in the early and mid 90s. Having said all of that, nowadays, everybody's talking more about electronic health records and electronic prescriptions and, and all kinds of ways to comply with all of the people with, with the nooses, that is to say the insurance companies, the PBMs, the GPOs, the hospital systems, um, the large employers that basically want to use physicians as just a workhorse. More like data entry clerks, right? Just have the data Sorry. entry clerks in there. So are you able yeah. to do all that with, is it just you and your wife in the practice right now? So good question. Um, uh, uh, fortunately, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's always a challenge to work with a first degree family member. On the plus side, nobody looks after your stuff more than somebody that's of your own <laughs> bloodline or marriage yeah. or something like that. But every little thing becomes a bigger thing that needs to be, you know, hey, who's going to take out the trash? You do it, doctor. Okay, fine happy to do it. Um, I can be a gentleman as well as a physician. So taking out trash was something that I did. Having said all of that, we have a small practice that has um, two people at the front desk because one of the features of our practice, you know, we have this great feature that not a lot of practices have. When somebody calls us, we answer the phone and you actually get a human and says, hi, this is Dr. Wax's office. My name is Julie. How can I help you? And that's customer service, that's the patient-physician relationship. Very important, the human touch, rather than press one for this, press two for that, press three for this, please hold or please leave a message and we'll call you back. If we're here, we answer the phone, which I think is a feature that's missing in many different services, especially medicine. So I want to say we have two front desk people. We have a, a medical assistant. Um, uh, there's my wife, the office manager. And there's a billing company that handles a lot of the third-party interactions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a, some substitute front desk people and some substitute folks that uh, do medical assisting and, you know, help patients prepare for their uh, time with me. And um, a billing company helps enable us to be able to, to work with insurance companies, which is, it's a double-edged sword, you know, working with insurance companies. You know, they send you checks or they don't send you checks. And that's yeah. the, the double edge of that. And you never know when those checks are gonna show up. So yeah, so it looks like, right. you know, that's right, at, right in what we usually see, five, six full-time employees for a doctor, you know, to handle kind of the burdensome um, EHRs like you were talking about. So we talked about a little bit of the challenges that you face every day. It's gotta be tough to be in your position. What do you say to people who call you and say, hey, I don't think I can maintain my private practice anymore. I think I'm going to, quote unquote, sell my practice, but they never actually sell their practice. They just close right. it up and, and go. You nobody know, offers you any money. They, they, they offer you a job. I mean, I was yeah. lucky the local university with two medical schools five years ago said, hey, we're looking for someone to do some uh, uh, assistant professoring and do some family medicine. And I, I would have, A, had to move myself and my patients six miles away, and I wouldn't have had the same interaction. Plus, I wouldn't have had the 
relative business freedom to determine who I saw and how long I saw them and what time and effort was put into things. Hell, I didn't even know if I could have samples at an academic practice. And I pride myself on giving patients samples and coupons and, you know, seeing drug reps for their benefit. I mean, that to me, you know, I can withstand a sales speech. I'm an adult and I can withstand a sales speech and I can make those decisions. I don't need the government tell me that it's poison speech or that I'm not allowed to accept samples because they prejudice me. They don't because I, I take them with a grain of salt. I benefit by them. My patients benefit by them. And, you know, I try to use all of the avenues to the patient's best interest. And it's complicated, as you point out, because now there's an electric health record. You know, we become data entry clerks and all of the third parties and fourth parties and whoever else is in the equation is using that data to, to beat myself and the patient to death with. And, yeah. and that's, that to me is a big issue because HIPAA was supposed to be, it was sold as this privacy rule and HIPAA has nothing to do with privacy. It's right. a government compliance disclosure rule. It's privacy zero. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you touched upon something there about how you are free to see drug reps. And this is something that's really, really interesting because I'm sure you talked to some colleagues who are working in hospitals and yeah. drug reps have been totally frozen out of those environments. And we Correct. kind of dig a little deeper and find out that this is because hospitals are signing agreements with certain drug companies and they, they kind of agree to not offer different types of drugs, probably to the patient's detriment, I would assume. Correct. And in my opinion, a patient should have every possible alternative. Now, you may not be able to afford some alternatives, but, you know, not everybody drives the perfect car that they've always wanted. I mean, you drive a practical car that fits your value system and you decide, do I spend more money on my car, more money on my health, more money on my children, more money on myself, more money on my haircut? You know, um, Mm -hmm. haircut's not an issue for me. But anyway, my point of the matter is, is everyone has their own individual value system and the more middle people that get shoved in there. And you mentioned about drug reps. I wrote an article around 2010, 2011 in medical economics when I was on the editorial board called Don't Shut the Door on Reps. And as I was saying before, these people, um, they have to feed their families. They have to pay their taxes. Their kids go to school with my kids. They bring my office and patients Um, all kinds of positive things. They bring samples, they bring coupons, they bring new indications. And as I said, I can withstand a sales speech. And the more information I get from the more sources, the better off it is. Yeah. And that's kind of like the government overreach, like you were talking about, even the academic setting. And and I know, again, you've, you've incorporated a lot of, like I said before, the hallmarks of DPC in that. But you've mentioned before in various sources how you're, you're frustrated with Kind of the overreach in, uh, in your home state of New Jersey there, specifically within in-office dispensing of medication. Give me a little bit of in your, in your mindset of why this is so frustrating for you. Well, it's crazy frustrating because as a physician, I want to have every possible thing at my disposal to be able to treat every possible patient within the confines of their value systems. And um, in office, I can't dispense medications. In many other states, you can I imagine that some uh, guild or organization or somebody paid somebody off at one point in time. This is New Jersey. That um, <laughs> but I'm not allowed by law. You know, yeah. there's a book called The Soprano State. You might want to read it. It was written by two reporters about the great state of New Jersey. And the people are fabulous here. The government 
for, for most of my lifetime has been bought, paid for, and, and whatever else. And we're trying to change that around because currently um, a lot of people don't agree with the COVID-19 lockdowns and the continued states of emergency that are overreactions, overreaches, in my opinion. I mean, everybody, in my opinion, should have some flexibility to respond in a way that they wish to all that's going on and should maintain their freedom and be able to have what's called natural consequences. That is to say, you know, if I want to ride a motorcycle, I'm taking a risk. Mm -hmm. If I want to ride in Pennsylvania without a helmet, I'm taking a stupid, crazy risk, but it is what it is. And people should have choices. And I'm not, I'm not making an argument that people should ride without helmets. I was just trying to give you an example of how different people take different risks. I won't even ride a motorcycle. Well, I appreciate the clarification there. So it really fits within this theme that when certain things are mandated, you lose a lot of the innovation. It reminds me of this article that a few years back, uh, I was in the Wall Street Journal, and one of the gentlemen who was the architects of the ACA came out and, and kind of did a mea culpa saying, hey, we got this wrong because we thought that with consolidation of medical care into bigger systems, that would help drive innovation from a centralized source. He said, that is not true at all. Innovation comes from the little guys, the independent physicians, the ones who are so flexible and able to move so quickly that they can get the latest drugs into their patients. They can get it distributed. They can incorporate new business models. And it really kind of brought that home when you were talking about there are big time roadblocks, not just to independent medicine, but to providing the best care possible for your patients. And I think we see that when doctor's offices are being rolled up in these big systems that, you know, I, the, the physicians I've met who have left their practices and signed on to big hospitals, this is a kind of anecdotal, but they just don't seem to have the fire that they used to, to take care of the people. I can actually address them. that, Chris, and you're, you're 100% right. I mean, obviously you've done your research and you've lived as a person for quite a while and, you know, got some wisdom going when that, and that's it's the gray hair. It's all the gray hair I got. That's yeah, it. Well, you know, um, as long as it stays, you know, you're, you're in good shape, I think. Anyway, um, having said all of that, it's important for, for people to have choices. And whenever choices are taken away from a situation, it's never good. And, you know, in like getting back to what you had said is in New Jersey, we, we can't prescribe. So I could establish a DPC practice and I could save people time and money, but I can't incorporate the saving time and money on the pharmaceuticals. Now, I have certain pharmacies that can do things online cheaper than the big name pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens, which are the biggest, most expensive places to buy on the planet. It's like getting your car work done at an auto dealership, except worse, because, you know, everything is by this insane price list that you can't even see or negotiate with when you're dealing with the mechanic down the street or somebody in a personal one-on-one pharmacy or a single physician practice, as I'm in solo practice, you know, you've got all the bargaining power in the world because I have business and I want to decide, am I going to bring it to you or the big guy? I mean, you get to decide if you're going to go to the mom and pop um, Warren's Hardware we have in our town or to the Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart. You get to make those decisions and they're important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as we wind down here on our discussion, last question for you. What's your advice to another physician who calls you up and says, hey, I'm thinking about going to this hospital? What do you say to him? Right. Well, I would get a megaphone out and I would go, don't do it. 
you know, um, and, and have a lot of echo in my voice, maybe some reverb as well. It, it's very, very difficult because physicians as, as, a, as a group, as a species, you know, they say it's a calling. And I, I was four years old when I, uh, I said, I want to be a doctor. And my mom and dad weren't doctors, frankly and honestly. So, um, I, you know, I incorporated something, a, a true love of serving my fellow man and woman uh, kind um, as well as feeding my own knowledge and my own experience because I, there's always new information to bring in and classic things that you don't want to let go of because they work. And it's really important. And I would tell physicians if they're coming out into practice to consider the direct model first, which is a DPC or what have you. Um, the next model is to work with insurance somehow and government programs and try to help patients cope with all of that. But it's not an ideal situation. The worst situation is to move beyond that to being employed by a hospital healthcare system, um, a large staff model HMO or some giant organization where there's another agenda. Like you were saying, when you know, you've only got a limited number of things you can pick from, studies, tests, medications, I mean, you want to have everything at your possible disposal, and you want a physician that's, that's creative and, and can utilize new things and try things and, and be respectful of your value system. And, and as an independent physician, um, it's really important because technically, I'm not owned by any institution. I mean, I am paid by insurance and government programs, so I do have to cope with all of those things, stealing time, stealing energy, stealing money, stealing resources from the patient-physician relationship. However, it's, it's my way of um, helping physicians cope and personally coping. And as I said, when I grow up, um, I, I hope to be a DPC direct practice, close the door to insurance and government, and just work for the most important person in the world, my patient. Absolutely. Very well said. Maintaining that neutrality and then, again, taking the best care possible of your patient. And hey, when you're ready to go DPC, you know, give Freedom HealthWorks a call. We're more than happy to, to help you out and if uh, we can be of use for you. Dr. Wax, thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thank you kindly. I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks to you and your talented staff for uh, making this a reality and keep up the good work. I appreciate that. That's Dr. Craig Wax, family physician, independent physicians for patient independence, founder and host of your own radio show, Your Health Matters on RowanRadio.com. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. 
Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.